Father, we come to you and we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our eyes and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we ask, oh God, that in attending to your voice, that your voice might be stronger and louder than all of the other voices in our culture, those negative voices in our head. And we pray that your voice might be transformative in our own life and in our own experience. And we pray that you would use this time and this place to draw us nearer to yourself. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So this morning we are coming to the close of our very brief series on happiness. But although our happiness series is coming to an end, I hope that your happiness never comes to an end. (laughs) All right. um, But as we conclude this morning, I want to I explore with you this morning the connection between gratitude and happiness. Do you want to be happy? Be grateful. That was the title of a TED Talk given by a Benedictine monk, and it received over 5 million views on YouTube. And, the talk, and in this talk, he explores what he says is the unbreakable link between happiness and gratitude. And he invites us to put this to the test. He says, look around at the world. And he says, you can test this out. He says, there are people who have everything they could want, and yet, he says, they're not happy. And then there are people who are experiencing situations, stuff in in their life that you wouldn't wish on anyone, and yet, they find themselves happy. And he says, very often, if you scratch below the surface, what you see, the difference between these two people is that one knows and experiences gratitude. And he says this, he says, you will find that it is not happiness that makes us grateful, but rather it is gratefulness that makes us happy. And so he ties together these two topics of gratitude and joy, And he says really that the key, one of the secrets of happiness is gratitude. Now, he is not the only one that has explored this link between happiness and gratitude. There have actually been, uh, uh, there's kind of this growing field of uh, the science of happy. And in the science of happy, there's a lot of kind of exploration of this relationship between gratitude and happiness. And consistently, the studies show that grateful people are happier people. And so, for example, in one study, uh, the participants were asked each week to note or to, to write notes on particular topics. And so one group was asked to write about things that they are grateful for that had occurred during the week. And then the second group uh, was asked to write about daily irritations and those things that displease them which almost sounds like a pleasurable thing to do, doesn't it? <laughs> Write about those daily irritations and those things that displease you. And at the end of you know, these, these several weeks of writing, which group do you think was more happy? Well, of course, as the writers say, they said after 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic and they felt better about their lives. They also exercised more and they went to the doctor less often. And so what they were discovering is that people who were practicing gratitude were experiencing greater levels of well-being. But, you know, it's not just the modern psychologists, it's not just the Benedictine monks that have explored this link between happiness and gratitude. Uh, Many of the great thinkers in the Western world have also noted this link. And so, for example, uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought. 
That's a beautiful thing to say. He says, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thoughts and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. And then the great Roman uh, philosopher and orator uh, Cicero said this. He said, gratitude is not only the greatest of the virtues, but it is the parent of all other virtues because he believed that it was from gratitude that all of the other virtues were given birth and flowed. But, you know, it's not just the modern psychiatrists and psychologists and the Benedictine monks and the, the great thinkers in the West that have, that have made this connection between gratitude and happiness. The Bible also draws the connection between gratitude and happiness. In fact, the book that we are studying is arguably the happiest book in the New Testament. It's the book of Philippians. And it is written by arguably one of the happiest people in the Greco-Roman world, the Apostle Paul. And throughout the letter, he's, he's saying, I rejoice, and then he's telling us to rejoice in the Lord. And interestingly, this is also a letter that was written, one of the primary reasons it was written, was to say thank you to a group of friends. In fact, Paul begins his letter like this. He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. He says, always I am giving thanks for you. And then as he comes to the end of the letter, he writes this. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God. In everything, with thanksgiving. And so he's drawing together this connection between happiness and gratitude. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to dive deeper into how he kind of makes this connection between gratitude and happiness. But as we jump into this, let me just ask you this question. Do you ever struggle with feeling grateful? Or maybe I should put it like this. Do you ever find, your, do you ever find it easy to complain? I mean, I find it very easy to complain. I find that I don't have to try hard to complain. I don't have to work hard at it. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because I'm a child of the 80s and I grew up with that disease called entitlement-itis. You know, I grew up in the household where my parents were taught to never make any critical remarks over your children, to always praise them for whatever they did, no matter what. And I think I drank that Kool-Aid, and I just feel like, look, I'm worthy all of the time of everything going exactly right for me. And there's many of you that share that sentiment, don't you? But maybe it's simply because there is just so much in this world to complain about, isn't there? I mean, your unreasonable boss and your sore back and the stupid drivers, you know, and if you go and if you're a church grower, there's no shortage of things to complain about in church. You know, the sermon was too long and the music was too loud and the seats were too hard and nobody talked to you. You know, it is so easy to complain, but it actually takes practice. It takes the cultivation of the habit of the mind in order to develop a life of gratitude. And so what we're going to do this morning is I want to draw out three things from this letter that Paul wrote to this church in the, in the city of Philippi. I want to draw out th three things that he directs us to give thanks for. So three things that we can be grateful for this morning. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is Paul tells us, he, he teaches us in this letter to give thanks, number one, for the good that is all around us. Give thanks for the good that is all around us. And notice how he puts this in Philippians chapter 4, 
verse 8. He says this. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, he says, think about these things. He says, call to mind that which is lovely, that which is honorable, that which is true, that which is beautiful. And he says, fix your thoughts on the good and the true and the beautiful. Now, I used to think that his primary reference here was he was telling us to think about spiritual things. And he was calling us like in Psalm 1 where it talks about the man or woman who meditates day and night on the law of God. Now, of course, Paul here is commending to us meditation and fixing our thoughts upon Scripture and upon the good things that are there. But I think actually he has a broader application here. It's interesting, you know, the, the terms that he uses, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, these words in the ancient world were, were common virtue terminology. And there were words that, that the, the ancients used to kind of describe that which was good in the world around them. And, you know, earlier in the letter, Paul, he talks a little bit about how we live in this dark and kind of sinful age. And I think maybe what Paul is saying is, look, even though there is darkness around us, even though this world is broken, it's almost as if he's saying, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Although there's a lot of wrong stuff around us, there's also much good in the world around us. And I want you to notice, consider, and recognize the good wherever you see it. Stop and notice and pay attention to that which is good and true and noble and worthy of praise. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, the world that we live in is fallen. It's broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so we have a world with disease and mosquitoes and tsunamis and country music and cats. And there's all kinds of things about our world that's not the way it's supposed to be. But, but I think what Paul is saying here, I was just kidding, you country music fans. Look, Johnny Cash is a gift from the hand of God. All other country music artists. But, but Paul is saying, look, although the world is fallen, it is also created. And although we are broken people, we also bear the image of God. And so I want you to note around us this creation that we inhabit is infused, it is teeming with the, with the goodness and the glory and the grandeur of God. And so he says, look around at the world and notice it. This world is enchanted. God shines in all that's fair. Notice the beauty around you in nature. Notice the beauty around you in culture. There is science and technology and great film and great great music, and he says, recognize it, notice it wherever you see it, and celebrate it, and let it be fuel for your own gratitude. And I think what he wants us to see is that the world around us is grace, and it is gift. You know, theologians teach us that God is all-sufficient within God's self. Uh, God is a trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has never been lonely. God is fullness within himself. Uh, theologians say that God is the only necessary being. 
which means that he needs nothing. He depends on no one. He's never lonely. He's never in need like you or me. And so God didn't need to create anything. God is completely full and satisfied in God's own self. You know, last night uh, we were having, we had had a great dinner with some friends and family. And after dinner, uh, the the girls, uh, my daughters were dishing up dessert. And one of my daughters came out and she said, Daddy, would you like some ice cream? And at first I said, no. And the reason I said no is because I felt utterly satisfied and full. I was complete. I didn't need any ice cream. But then I saw the others get served ice cream, (laughs) cookies and cream and a little mitten chip. And then I thought, why not? I don't even need it. Like, I'm full, I'm satisfied, but there's always room for a little bit of ice cream. Now, that is fullness and satisfaction on a finite level. But God in God's own self is infinite fullness. He is infinite satisfaction. And so get this, when God creates all things, when he creates the beauty and the goodness around us, he doesn't do so out of necessity. He does it out of his own fullness. It's a spillage over of God's own life, of his own fullness, of his own goodness. One theologian, Michael Reeves, put it like this. He says, there is something gratuitous about creation. It is an unnecessary abundance of beauty. And through its blossoms and pleasures, we can revel in the sheer largesse of the Father. So all of that goodness, all of that abundance is gift. And so the proper response is gratitude and thanks. You know, the the Jewish people knew all about this better than almost anyone. And the Jews in, in the ancient world, they had blessings for almost everything, In fact, there was something really famous within uh, rabbinic Judaism called the 18. And they were a series of 18 blessings that the Jews would recite morning, noon, and night every single day. 18 blessings. And uh, the blessings began like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God. And then they followed with something that they were grateful for. And so these, these, these 18 blessings would be recited, giving God thanks for their health and their food and their wine and every day. And the rabbis had this saying that went like this. They said, whoever enjoys anything from creation without blessing God for it commits misuse. And so they would bless God for their food. And if they forgot to bless God for their food, they were required to go back to the place where they ate their meal, their meal, and then they would give thanks to God for it. That's how important it was. And it wasn't just their food in general, but they had different blessings for different types of food, a blessing for the bread, a specific blessing for the wine, a specific blessing for the figs. And if they were lucky enough that day to have meat, they would have a special blessing to God for the meat. And then they would give God, they would bless God for the lamps around their dinner tables because light is a gift. You know, we could be living in a world of darkness, but blessed be God, he has given us light. And then there were blessings for music because we could have lived in a world without music. And they had special blessings for the ocean. You know, there are some people who have never seen the ocean. In fact, there are some places, there are some people that live in places in the United States like Michigan, where it is freezing cold right now. Places where God sends people when he doesn't like them. <laughs> but you know, we, we, live on the, we live by the ocean. 
And they had this blessing for the ocean. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who made the great sea. And then when they saw an exotic animal like a white tiger, they would say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who makes the creatures distinctive. And then if they saw some strikingly beautiful animal or some great, incredible place for the first time they would, they, that was incredibly beautiful, they would say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who has such beauty in his universe. And so Paul is saying to us, he's saying, look, you don't have to have all of these gifts and you don't have to have all these capacities to enjoy all of the gifts. You don't need sight. You don't need hearing. You, you didn't need to have taste buds that enable you to take in all of the different flavors and, and, and sensations. And, and yet God, because of his goodness and his abundance, has showered us with all of these gifts and all of these blessings. And so Paul says, be attentive. Notice, think about these good gifts. Stop taking so much for granted and recognize that the world around you is not a brute fact. It is a gift from the hand of God. So number one, give thanks for the good that is all around us. But secondly, I think Paul wants us also to give thanks for the friends who walk beside us. And this is what he does actually in this letter Look again back at a chapter of four. It's interesting, again, he, he opens this letter by saying, I thank my God always for you. You are an unearned, undeserved gift of God's grace to my life, and I am so thankful for you. And then as he comes to the end of his letter, he has this little section at the end where he, he writes a little thank you to them for the way in which they had cared for him. You see, Paul wrote this letter from prison. He was in need. He, was, he had some lack in his own life. And this church had sent him resources. They sent him books and food and some money and blankets and whatnot to care for him in his distress. And listen to what he says in verse 14 of chapter 4. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. I've noticed you. You guys have been so gracious. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And then he says something interesting. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then he says something that sounds kind of strange to my ears, at least a little bit earlier when he's talking about the same gift. Verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that you, at length you have received your, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And then he says, not that I speak of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he says, I know how to abound. I know how to be brought low. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And at first, what it sounds like to my ears is Paul is like one of those friends who you try to help, and they consistently say, no, 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 no. I don't need that. No, thank you. You don't need to do that for me. Please don't do that for me. Anybody here have friends like that? Anybody here is a friend like that? And it kind of sounds like Paul is, is, is being that way with them. But that's because we're reading these words through 21st century ears. We have to remember that we are reading here someone else's mail. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the first century. And in the Greco-Roman world, there were basically three types of friendships. Uh, there was the good, 
There was the useful, and then there was the pleasurable. Now, the useful friends were the quid quo quo French, quid quo pro friendships. These were the friendships that were useful for your business. You know, they were strategic relationships. You know about this in our own business world. And then there were the pleasurable, and these were the friends that you liked to party with. You know, they had resources and means. They had the pool, the barbecue, the backyard. You could go to their house and have a great time. But then there was the good. And the good were those friends that you liked simply for who they were. And I think what Paul is telling the Philippian church is, look, you people are not just useful to me. You are good. I love you for who you are, not simply for what you do for me. This relationship isn't primarily about what you give to me. It's about who you are, and I appreciate, and I love you for who you are. Now, don't misunderstand. The people that Paul was in relationship with are a lot like the people who you are in relationship with. They are a mixed bag, you know? Some of your friends are yin and they're yang, you know? They're both good and bad. And all of our friends, all of our family members, all the people that we have in our life are not perfect, right? Let's get an amen on that. Amen. Not by any stretch. In fact, uh, this was like the church in Philippi. A little bit earlier in chapter 4, Paul calls out two ladies who are arguing in the church named Eudia and Syntyche. And he says, look, uh, tell these two women to get along. I mean, just stop and think about this. If the way you got remembered in the text of the sacred scripture <laughs> was because you got in an argument with somebody at church and Paul had to call you out on it, and that's what everybody throughout the rest of human history remembers you for... Aren't you glad none of you get in church fights or squabbles? But look, they were a mess just like we are. Uh, a little bit later in the letter to Paul confronts them all and he says, look, let, let not anything be done with grumbling and complaining. Stop your grumbling and stop your complaining. They had issues and they had problems. And yet nonetheless, nonetheless, Paul didn't primarily see in them their issues and their dysfunction and their problems and their failures. The primary thing that Paul took note of was the goodness that was there. You know, there are two ways you can see people, right? You can see, uh, you can see people like a glass is either half full or half empty. You can see your friends either half full or half empty. You can see the church that you're part of is half full or half empty. You can see your spouse or your roommate or your parents as half full or half empty. You can always be calling to mind what they are lacking or you can see what is there. Now, question. Are your family members, is your spouse, are your friends, is your roommate, are they both half full and half empty class? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Everyone, that's true for except for Karen, her husband is only all full. <laughs> but that is what we want, right? We have a, a picture of what the full cup would look like for your spouse, for your church, for your roommate, for your friends, for your parents. You have an ideal in your mind of what they could have been and what they should have been. And very often you are right. They should have been that. They could have been that, and they weren't. And you're right. They should, they should be a little bit stronger in this area, but they're not. They're weaker, and they, they lack. And in those moments, we have a choice to make. 
What are we going to fix our minds on and what is going to be dominant in our imagination when we habitually think about them? Is it going to be what they lack or is it going to be what they have? Now, again, Paul doesn't neglect ever addressing where this church lacks, but I want you to see that the dominant posture he has for them is gratitude for what God has done in their life. And friends, this is our dominant posture that we need to take toward the people with whom we are in relationship with. And as we see what's there, always be giving God thanks for them. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his great book, Life Together, and I've talked about this book many times, but he has this great line in there, and I just want to talk to you about this briefly. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community become destroyers of the Christian community. And you could insert in there, those who love their dream of a husband or wife more than the husband or wife they're married to becomes a destroyer of them. Those who love their dream of parents more than the actual parents that they have become destroyers of their parents or their friends or their roommates or whatever. But his point is is that we can either be in love with our ideals or we can be in love with the real people who God has put in our life. And the danger is, is that being in love with our ideals, that we start to critique and judge everyone for what they are not based upon our ideals and our standards. And we're always walking around life disappointed and negative and angry because of what is missing. And I know this is particularly difficult for you if you are an idealist. But I just want you to know the Apostle Paul was not anything if not an extreme idealist. I mean, this man was a perfectionist. He was an extremist. And he had high ideals, but he came to love the people that God had placed around him more than his ideals. And it's actually in your love and in your gratitude for the people around you that you actually cause them to flourish and grow. The soil of our own growth in virtue and in character is a soil that is seeded with people's appreciation of us and love of us and our gratitude and their acceptance of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he continues writing, puts it like this. He says, if we do not give daily thanks for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, or if we do not give daily thanks for our husband or for our wife or for our children or for our parents or for our friends or our roommates, where, even where there is no great experience and no discoverable riches, but much weakness and small faith and difficulty... If, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. In her book, Gilead, Marilyn Robinson, uh, she she tells a story of this uh, old pastor who... Uh, later in life, gets married, and even as an older man, he winds up having this child with his new wife. And the whole book is framed as as him writing this series of uh, letters to his son, who he fears that he, he, because of his age and because of his health, he will not be able to see his son when he gets older. And at some point in writing to him, he, he speaks these words over his son. And I want you just to think, imagine somebody saying these words about you. 
He says, I'm writing this in part to tell you that if ever you wonder what you've done in your life, and everyone does wonder sooner or later, you have been God's grace to me, a miracle, something more than a miracle. And I, I think about my wife, Alicia, and I think if, if ever she wonders what she has done in her life, she has been God's grace to me, a miracle even more than a miracle. My, my, my daughters, Audrey, Mia, Lucy, and Eve, they have been God's grace to me, and more than a grace, a miracle, a radical gift of God's abundance. And being your pastor has been a gift of God's grace to me. It's a miracle to gift out of God's abundance. And so we need to look around each other and recognize the gifts that are around us and stop always criticizing and stop always critiquing and stop always judging and turn and just say, God, thank you for those friends that you have brought to walk beside me. The Apostle Paul learned gratitude in this way. And so number one, he saw, he, he saw and he wants us to see the good that is around us and let that fuel our own life of gratitude. He wants us to habitually learn to, to see those friends that walk beside us as gifts, as miracles of God's grace in our life and get God thanks for them. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, but, but my husband or wife or my son or daughter, like you don't know what difficult people they are. Well, look, you're no prize. <laughs> But look, it is the grace and mercy of God toward all of us, amen? And yeah, I know that this is, I'm, don't, hear, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that there's no place for speaking truth to each other and calling out those areas where there's empty. Love actually drives us to speak truth. But it's truth spoken in a context, in an environment of deep gratitude and appreciation and love that you are made to feel by how this person speaks to you and loves you, cares for you. So give thanks, secondly, for those friends beside us. But then thirdly, Paul wants us to give thanks for the work of Christ within us. Turn back to Philippians chapter 4 again. He says, let's pick it up in verse 11. Classic little verses. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret What's the secret, Paul? He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And then he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I think very often we misread this verse because oftentimes this is, uh, it's one of those calendar verses that we take and we do things like this with it. You know, before the big game, we think, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And what are we saying with that verse in that context? Through Christ, I can win. Through Christ, I'm going to be a winner. I'm going to win the race. I'm going to win the game. You know, I'm going to make the big sale. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But that is completely not what Paul is saying in our text. Paul actually doesn't simply say, I can win through Christ who gives me strength. Paul is saying, I have learned how to lose through Christ who gives me strength. I have learned how to suffer lack and hunger through Christ who gives me strength. And I think what he's saying is that he's saying, I have discovered that in Christ, 
his abundance and his fullness and what he has accomplished in this world is so much greater, it's so much bigger, it is infinite and eternal and so much more lasting than anything that I may experience in this life. God's victory in Jesus Christ over sin and death and darkness is eternal. God's name that he has placed on you to call you a son or daughter of God is eternal. God's plan for you ultimately to rid the world of darkness and tears and pain is eternal. His plan to ultimately bring us into a a kingdom of abundance and justice and love is eternal. And no matter what happens in our life through Christ, we can have strength to get through it because it's only temporal compared to what is an eternal weight of glory. When he was 18 years old, Jonathan Edwards preached his first sermon. And the title of the sermon was The Christian's Happiness. And listen to his three points. And his thesis was Christians should be happy. But here are his three points. He says, why? Number one, because our bad things turn out for good. Two, our good things can never be last, lost. And third, the best things are yet to come. That's a good three-point sermon for an 18-year-old, isn't it? But it's true. God is turning the darkness in the world ultimately into the light of his eternal kingdom. He has defeated the darkness through his own sacrificial love, and his love for you is eternal, and it will never end. And that is the strength inside of you that can drive you into this world with gratitude to God for his immeasurable riches and grace towards you. And so Paul is drawing our attention to the goodness around us. He's drawing our attention to our friends beside us and to the the work of Christ within us. And he's telling us to fix our attention, to develop a habit of mind where we're constantly going back and we're rehearsing the truth of, of all of this abundance again and again and again. And I just, I just wonder for you, when you lay in bed at night, what do you think about? I mean, all of us recount things in bed at night, don't you? What do you rehearse in your mind? Some of us rehearse all of the bad things that have been done to us. But what does that render? It renders somebody who is bitter and angry. And some of us rehearse all of the things that we want but we don't have. But what does that render? It renders somebody who is discontent. Some of us rehearse in our minds all of the stupid things we said or did and were eaten up by it at night. If only I would have, if only I, I, I said this, but what does that render? It renders somebody who's just depressed and who's self-defeated. But Paul is inviting us to fix our attention, to rehearse a different and better narrative in our own head and minds. And it's the narrative of the God who created all things out of his own fullness and goodness. The God who out of his own fullness and goodness took on flesh and blood and defeated the darkness in our stead and for our sakes and who has made all things resurrection new. And he says, rehearse these truths. Talk to yourself about the good that God has brought to you. Now, I know for some of us, this is very, very difficult. I I was talking to my wife about this, and, and she had this illustration that I thought was just fantastic. Imagine yourself 
you know, two different people being in the Yosemite Valley. And one person in the Yosemite Valley is just looking up and around them. And you see the trees and you see, you know, the mountains and, and the grandeur of everything that is around you. And you are just filled with wonder and you're full with, with, with gratitude and joy. And then there's another person. But this person last night was attacked by a ferocious bear in the valley. And they get up the next day and they go for a walk in the valley And now this person is not looking up at all of the grandeur around them. No, the trauma has produced a different response in them. Now they're just freaked out about what might attack them next. And they can't look up because they're they're so traumatized by what has happened to them. And I know that some of you in this room this morning, you have a difficult time entering into lives of gratitude and joy. You have a very difficult time looking up and seeing the goodness around you and those friends beside you and the work of Christ within you because you have experienced trauma in your life. And so the primary reaction you have of life is not gratitude and joy. It's you're freaking out about what might happen to you next. And so if that is where you're at, you may need to go into a process of healing from the trauma And that may involve counseling. It may involve, you know, deep discussions with your friends who care about you. It will involve continually immersing yourself in scripture and the story of God and what God has done and coming to church. But you know, the the very place, the center out of which the healing from all of the trauma in our life takes place, the place where it begins is at the foot of the cross. Our great God and Father, we come to you as a people who are lacking to be made full by your abundance. We come as people who hunger and thirst, and we come to you to be satisfied in your love. Oh God, even as we partake of this bread and as we drink this cup, oh God, would you, by your spirit, make us aware of your great abundance that nourishes and feeds our thirsty and hungry souls. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who has given himself fully and unreservedly for us. Amen.